this is, of course, Advent season. And uh, if y'all could, uh, make sure to thank Macy Shock for uh, putting these decorations up for us uh, over this last week. I think she did a great job. And uh, just a way for us to celebrate uh, the coming Messiah, Jesus, who we uh, are celebrating together today. Um, so to kick off Advent season, uh, I wanted to do an informal poll a little bit. So, of course, we have our, uh, our Christmas trees here. But I want to see a show of hands. Who already has some Christmas decorations up at their house? So go ahead and raise them high. So I already see some Scrooges that haven't done them yet. So, okay, so leave them up for me. Who has had their uh, tree up since before Thanksgiving? Okay, so that weeded out quite a few. Okay. How about a week before Thanksgiving? How about no, since November 1st? Okay, I saw, oh, Jerry, so what, when did you have your Christmas decorations up? November 1st. Okay, so we have a winner. All right, give it up for, all right, so we definitely need to hang out because we also have had multiple Christmas trees in our house since before Thanksgiving. Uh, my wife, uh, we actually end up having a Christmas tree in every single one of the rooms of our house, including my kids' rooms. So, um, so we love to celebrate Christmas uh, together um, here because the, the, here's the news. We have a lot to celebrate, do we not? We have a lot to celebrate during the Advent season, and that's exactly what we do during this time. Advent, of course, is a, is a word that itself means the coming or arrival, which, class, who, who are we celebrating the coming and arrival of? Jesus, right. Sunday school answer wins every time, okay? So yeah, Jesus. We celebrate the coming and the arrival of Jesus, and, uh, and that's what we're going to be doing over the next several weeks of how we are able to, to celebrate that together. And... Um, and so throughout the Gospels, we see this theme of, of what it looks like to love Jesus. And we see a theme of loving the Lord with all of our mind, all of our heart, and all of our soul. And for the writers at that time, as they say these phrases, what that really means is loving Jesus with all of who we are. And that's exactly what we're going to be focusing on over the next several weeks, is how do we love Jesus with all of who we are? And that's, that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, is it not? That we are continuously finding more and more ways how we can give more and more of our lives uh, to following Jesus and telling others about him. Being a Christian, being a disciple of Jesus isn't just showing up on Sundays and then your life doesn't look any different the rest of the week. That's what it means to be a disciple. Is we're full-time disciples, not part-time disciples, right? So we want to uh, show up every single day. And how can the Lord be more and more at work in my heart with my mind, our senses, our bodies, our relationships, our pursuits, our aspirations, our homes, our work, everything. Everything. So today we're going to focus on loving Jesus with our minds. And this is what we're going to talk about today. How can we intellectually love Jesus? How, does, how, how can our intellect glorify God? And of course they gave this one to me, the resident elder nerd. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, uh, to take on the mantle and, uh, and t- talk to you about that. And... Um, but how can the Holy Spirit engaging our minds be to our benefit? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So um, before we do that, let us silence our cell phones and, uh, and let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you what this season means to us. Thank you that we have a God who came down to us and celebrates, and we, that we get to celebrate, a God that came down to us to save us, God. God, don't let us forget, don't let all the Christmas decorations and, and gifts and delicious food, uh, let us forget of what all those things are pointing to, which is the coming Messiah, the God who came down, laid his life down for us, and died for our sins. 
That's what we celebrate during this time. So God, thank you again just for being a God who does those things. You didn't have to do any of those things, but out of your love for us, you demonstrated that love on the cross. Thank you so much for doing that. And thank you for choosing to save sinners like me, like us in this room. We love you. Continue to be with us in this room. We know that you're here. Let us feel your presence. Let us open up the scriptures together and let us see what you have for us. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So what we're going to be doing this morning is I need you to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And uh, for those of you who have been at Refuge for a little while, you'll know that, uh, no, I'm not starting over our Genesis, uh, our Genesis series. We've been in Genesis for a little over a year now. Uh, we're going to pick back up in Genesis chapter 28 after the new year. Uh, but for this morning, I wanted you to look at something very specific in Genesis chapter 3. So go ahead and turn there with me, and we're going to pick up in verse 13. So Genesis 3, 13 through 15 says this, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord, said to the, uh, Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So again, this is something that sounds familiar to us who have been here uh, for a little while at Refuge as we've been walking chapter by chapter through Genesis. Uh, But it's here in chapter 3 that we actually see the first of the messianic prophecies that we've seen all throughout. And Cassie, as you were reading, just talked about those a little bit, about the prophecies that we see just peppered all throughout the Old Testament of the coming Messiah. And this is the first that we see of these prophecies. So um, and so what I want you to look at is a little bit closer is verse 15 specifically. And here you'll notice that a couple of uh, statements are being made that foretell the actions of, of, what's going, uh, of what we now know is the Messiah, Jesus. So the first thing I want you to notice is what it doesn't say is it doesn't say between his offspring. You see that it says her offspring, which is kind of weird, especially as you're looking at the lineage of men at this time. It was almost, you know, this guy begot this guy who begot this guy who begot this guy. Um, but we see in the, at the beginning of the uh, the beginning of Matthew with a long um, long list of names that it, it speaks of Mary, not the not the Joseph, not the father. And we all know that's because Father uh, Joseph was not his father. The father of Jesus is who? God, the Holy Spirit. We know that that it was through Mary and uh, being the, the immaculate conception from the Holy Spirit that he came to us. Which is why. A lot of scholars believe that talking about her offspring and not his is the first messianic prophecy talking about the virgin birth of Mary. And of course, we know that comes to be fulfilled, right? So we know that that's the first thing we see. Then, but we also see another thing. He shall bruise your head, and he shall, I'm sorry, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So we see again another prophecy being told here in Genesis 3 from the very beginning where we see right on the heels of Sin entering the world and fracturing the creation itself, fracturing our relationship with God, we see God already starting to make promises of how he's going to fix it, of how he's going to restore us back to himself. And this, of course, is foretelling the battle between the two offsprings, Jesus and Satan. Satan will bruise Jesus' heel, which, of course, through the the crucifixion and death, temporary death, But Jesus will deliver a blow to Satan that is fatal. Not just bruising his heel, but bruising his head. A fatal blow 
because he'll be rising again on the third day, putting a, putting a stopper on death and sin with it. He's paying for the sins of the world for those who believe, and he's restoring mankind back together for those for what was broken here in Genesis 3. So we see already in Genesis 3, God's already starting to make these promises of how he's going to restore his people back to himself, right on the heels of what was broken in the first place. What a glorious, loving father we serve, do we not? He's already rescuing us. And that reminds us of the not-oh-so-uncommon refrain we keep seeing over and over and over through Genesis which is this, God keeps his promises. He does. Every time I see a rainbow, I think about Noah, right? And I think about the, the thing that we talked about with our, um, my, my wife and I as we were teaching the three-year-old class when we first got married and what we've taught our kids so far is when you see a rainbow, that's God telling us God keeps his promises. And he does. He does keep his promises. And what we know about even what we saw in those, uh, the promises that we saw in Genesis 3, the common thread in all of them is that they happened. God kept his promise. All of those, all of those um, prophecies that, were, that he's laid out in Genesis 3, but also all the ones up until Jesus' birth, were fulfilled through the man of Jesus Christ. And so that's one of the things I want you to think about as we're talking about all this. I'm giving away the punchline early, okay? That God, all of these prophecies that we see, God fulfilled them through the person of Jesus Christ dying over our sins. And that is really, really, really good news. So we know that throughout the Bible, they're not 66 disconnected books, right? We know that it's one grand narrative that points to one man, Jesus. The whole Bible is about Jesus. We talk about that all the time here at Refuge. And yes, we see these heroes of the Old Testament doing great things, God making even promises to them and seeing him fulfill them. But we know that they are just shadows of the hero to come in the person of Jesus Christ. We know that's what's going on. And, and so... Yes, these heroes of the Old Testament, they do serve as, as real-life allegories for Jesus, but we also see explicit prophecies throughout the Old Testament of the hero to come, of the coming Messiah. Over and over and over, see, we see these prophecies. And we just looked at three of these examples in Genesis 3. So this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to look at two more of, these pro- of, of the many prophecies throughout the Old Testament, and I want you to see how when we engage them intellectually, when we can see what this is showing us, what God has done for us just in history, it's nothing short of mind-blowing. It really is. And assuming that you're as big as a nerd as I am. I, I assume I got someone in here with me. But it's nothing short of mind-blowing. And I know that when we engage, allow the Holy Spirit to engage not just our hearts, but also our minds around this, I hope that it serves as an encouragement to you, uh, my brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. So keep that in mind as we're going. And the next, uh, the first one that we actually want us to look at is one that Cassie read for us earlier, which is in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So let me maybe remind you of what that, uh, what that is. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. So we see here again the prophecy of the virgin birth, one that we know is fulfilled in, Ma- in Mary's virgin birth of Jesus, but we also see some color added to this time. What will his name be? Emmanuel, right? Now, some of you might be thinking, I thought my Savior's name was Jesus. What's up with that? Maybe his, is his middle name Emmanuel? Is it Jesus Emmanuel Christ? So, because Christ is his last name, right? So, yeah. No, 
It's not Jesus Emmanuel Christ, right? So, this, so if his name is Jesus, but he's also called Emmanuel, what's up with that? Like, what is that telling us? Well, it doesn't actually give us just his name. It gives us his purpose. It gives us a hope that we have in this coming Messiah, this person of Jesus. So turn with me now to, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, and I'm going to show you where this specific prophecy is fulfilled. So Matthew, chapter 1, we're going to pick up in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, what we just read. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we see that Isaiah's prophecy that we just read is fulfilled here in Matthew through the virgin birth of Mary giving birth to Jesus. And so although we see that his name is called Jesus, we see that Emmanuel points not just to his name, but to who he is. And what do we see here that Emmanuel means? God with us. Emmanuel means God with us. Y'all, God with us. That's a big deal. I need y'all to get excited. God with us. That's a big, big deal. Huge deal. I mean, Think about the climate of the Roman Empire at the time, which I'm, I'm not a scholar either, but I've read some stuff, you know, and uh, we have all this Greek mythology flooding into the Roman Empire at the time, and what we have is temples all over the place, filled with idols of lifeless gods. And those gods must be appeased in order, if in some way or another. That's, what, that's the climate that this is happening in, is that we're always looking for a people, uh, looking at gods up in the clouds that we have to do something to appease them. And I'd argue the same is even maybe true for how we operationally act here in Arlington and Bartlett and Memphis. That God is viewed as this being in the sky that we must work up to for approval and affections. We must work up to them. But that's not what the one true God does. It's not a style. It's not what he does. And that's what makes the one true gospel of Jesus Christ so, so scandalous. In Philippians chapter 2, we read this. Uh, I'm going to, um, just you can listen or turn there if you like. Starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We don't have to work up to an uncaring and smug God. He humbled himself. 
and became the Emmanuel. He came down to us. And what's more, he died for us after he did that. That's a big deal. I mean, how different from other religions and false religions we see all around us. And we see that now. That we have to constantly work and white-knuckle it into heaven. That's not what Jesus did. Now, prophecies we see through in movies. I know we watch a lot of movies. We hear about prophecies of the end of the world. It's usually just that, right? A prophecy of something bad happening. But how cool is it that the prophecy that was fulfilled is one of good news and hope? It's great news for us, is it not? It is for those of us who believe. So to drive this point home just a bit further, I want us to look at our third of the fulfilled prophecies so we can see why this Emmanuel, this God with us, is such good news. And that's in Isaiah chapter 53. So turn there with me to Isaiah chapter 53 as we look at the third. And we're going to pick up in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who had considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with his wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had once no violence, although he had done no violence, and here and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And as he put him to grief, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his souls he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. It's good news. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Not only do we have Emmanuel, God with us, which is amazing in and of itself, but look at what he did for us. He took away the sins of the world. He took away my sins. He took away your sins. He's not the uncaring smug dude in the clouds that we have to beg to like us. That's not the God we serve. He's a father who loves his children enough to lower himself to their filth and then die to cleanse them. That's the God we serve. That's the God we get to call father. That's the God we get to call savior. This is why Advent is such a beautiful time of celebration. It's the beginning of of God 
fulfilling his promise of hope for us. The world was broken by sin, just like what we saw in Genesis. But God didn't leave us to die in our sins. He came down to us and became sin for us and died to put it to death on our behalf. What a gracious and loving God we serve. I know I might sound like a little bit like a broken record, but I hope this is all you hear every time there's someone preaching up here, how much God loves you and what Jesus has done for you. Don't forget it. Don't let you become numb to it. God filled the Old Testament with a promise to restore the people to himself. And he did just that in the person of God with us, the Emmanuel, Jesus. All of these Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. So I don't know about you, but that, that thinking of that just gets me pumped up. I mean, that's, that's such a cool thing to just intellectually think about. All of these things were fulfilled in the, purpose of, uh, in the person of Jesus. But I know that there's some of you who might be skeptics, who might be thinking, you know, just, I see you're getting all excited, but, but what if none of this is true? What if it's all made up? And I can, I can see why you might think that, because what we believe is pretty fantastic. It really is. So I can see why you might be skeptical. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, once famously said that Jesus must be one of three things, either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. I mean, only one of those three things can be true, right? I mean, perhaps he was um, just a liar, right? Maybe the skeptic, you're not wrong, wrong to wonder that. What if Jesus was just lying the whole time? He really wasn't the person he says he was. Or what if he really did believe it, but he was just crazy? Like, that's, that's possible, right? You, I can see how someone might think that, right? That maybe he wasn't explicitly lying, but he was just insane to think that he was that person. But like I believe, and like we believe here at Refuge and preach every week, Jesus is for real. He's the real deal. He really is. And he was telling the truth about himself. He wasn't in his own head about it. He really was the person that he claimed to be, that God foretold throughout all of the Old Testament. In fact, there, there's a ton of Old Testament prophecies, and, and Jesus foretold them about himself, but he actually wasn't the only person making that claim. Do y'all know that? I mean, that there was over, there was hundreds of years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, so you can imagine there was probably some swindlers that were trying to get in there, right, and be like, hey, I'm that guy. The guy we read about in the scriptures, that's me. I'm that guy. So surely there's a lot of people making these claims, which we, we, there is historical evidence of that, of that very thing. So, so how did they kind of, how did they figure out who was telling the truth? Who was, maybe who was telling the truth and not just lying, or who was not just crazy and thinking that, right? What they did is they stacked them up against all of these prophecies. That's what they did. They had the prophecies on the Old Testament, so they said, okay, if you really are the Messiah, then all of these things must be true about you. So they stack them up. And as you can imagine, many of these prophecies just weeded out all the liars and lunatics, right? Maybe one or two might be true, but eventually they're going to hit one that just doesn't add up. And then, they're, okay, well, this guy's not for real. And, I mean, keep in mind, too, there were also prophecies that they couldn't even control, like where he was going to be born, about his mom, you know, about lots of things that I can't control. I can't, like, you know, fake some paperwork to make that happen. So it has to be the real, one true Messiah for that. Now, just to put this in perspective for a minute, I, I want to show you how hard it would be to actually match up to just eight of these Old Testament prophecies, okay? So this is the great state of Texas, where I was born, actually. So, yep, there you go. Got Kenneth over there, too. 
This is Texas, okay? It's a big state. Actually, to be precise, it's uh, 268, 820,000 square miles. So um, pretty big. By the comparison to Tennessee, we're only about 41,000 square miles. So it's six and a half times bigger than Tennessee. So it's a huge state. Okay, and this, hang on, let me get to my, my pocket, is a silver dollar. Okay? I know a lot of kids have never seen these before. They went out of circulation a while ago, but my father-in-law had one, so I borrowed it from him. Uh, this is a silver dollar. So it's a pretty big coin, but not very big compared to Texas, okay? So follow with me along with this. What I want you to do is I want you to think about this coin, and I want you to lay them down end to end over and over and over until you have a layer that fills Texas with silver dollars. Millions and millions and millions of them. A coin just like this covering all of Texas, okay? Now keep going. Keep adding layer upon layer upon layer until they're two feet thick, okay? That's a lot of silver dollars. That's at least 20, right? That's a lot, that's a lot of silver dollars, okay? Millions and billions of silver dollars. Now imagine that I took a Sharpie and I marked my initials on one of them. And then I took someone and I put a blindfold on you and I told you, okay, I want you to go pick one at random, what are the odds of you grabbing the one that I marked with the Sharpie? Not very good. It's actually the same odds as someone fulfilling eight Old Testament prophecies. It's the same odds. How many did Jesus fulfill? Not only eight of them, 330 of them. That's 40 Texases filled with silver dollars. Okay? The odds are astronomical. There's no way that this guy named Jesus just happened to fall backwards into being the Messiah. There's no way that's the case. This guy named Jesus, he didn't just get lucky. And God, through these prophets, wasn't building... Oh, sorry. This is, this is how I reacted the first time I heard this. Um, yeah, so I don't know if you're the same way. So that's how I reacted. But um, God, through these prophets, he, he wasn't just building random qualifications, hoping that someone eventually would show up to the plate. That's not what was happening. I mean... He wasn't like many of us did in middle school, you know, and you start, you start writing that list of what your future spouse is going to be like, and they have to meet all those qualifications. Was I the only one that did that? Man, I feel really vulnerable now. So, um, okay, got to be tall, long hair, pretty eyes. Funny, but respectful, okay? Loves animals. Like, so, right, so yeah, we all, we all had those things, right? All the lists. That's not what God did. God didn't just list out his wish list of what the Messiah is going to be. It wasn't arbitrary at all. It's almost as if God was talking about someone. Almost, right? That's exactly what he was doing. He was talking about Jesus. He wasn't listing arbitrary qualifications, hoping that someone would show up. He was talking about the person that he knew would be Jesus. He himself in human form, the God-man coming to save the world. He was talking about a person specifically. He was talking about Jesus from the very beginning. Right on the heels of sin entering the world, he was already talking about the man who would come to fix it. How beautiful is that? That's how much your God loves you. He's not leaving it up to chance. He's not leaving you in your own sin. He's coming down to die for you. What a wonderful God we serve. He stood up to the test, all of them, because Jesus is for real. He's the one true God. He's the Messiah, the Emmanuel, the God with us, who came to save me from my sin, you from your sin. So as I close, the, the first prophecy in the Scripture that we looked at in Genesis 3, also that narrative points to something else beautiful that I want to point out. Um, you can, I'm going to have it up on the screen. Genesis 3, 8 
and 9 says this, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? Why, why do you think God did that? Do you think God misplaced these people like he does his car keys? you think God didn't already know where they were? Of course he knew where they were. I think that God wanted his children to know that he was looking for them. I think that's why he was doing that. Adam and Eve, hiding in shame and guilt, were being sought after by their God. And we read later that he wasn't seeking them out to punish them. He was seeking them out to cover their nakedness and to protect them. This is the picture that we celebrate in Advent. A God seeking after a sinful people to save them. God seeking after you to save you. So looking at all these prophecies and and seeing how Jesus stacks up, it does serve as a way uh, to intellectually strengthen our belief in Jesus. So I hope it did that for you as, as it did for me. And there's also a ton of other resources to see how Jesus really was who he says he was. I mean, there are mountains of scientifically documented, historically vetted um, evidence that Jesus not only lived and died, but he is who he says he was in the scriptures. Secular documents, not outside of the Bible, that approve what the Bible says about him. And if you want any of those, I'll put one in your hands today, okay? He really is who he says he was. But here's what I also want you to know. You could read books and articles and watch movies and study history as much as you want, but that won't make you believe that Jesus is a long way to Messiah. No mountain of evidence can force your cold heart to become alive. It can help. It can help start softening that, like as Jeff prayed for earlier, but that's not going to do it. And it's not the job of pastors like me to use some gypsy spell mind trick to force you to believe. That's not what we're going to do, okay? That's not my job. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to bring you from death to life. And hopefully, things like this are just putting kindling around you, waiting for the Holy Spirit to light that match and watch you, come, watch you burn with fire and glory for him. Because here's the thing. The, the Holy Spirit doesn't need to enter your mind before he can cra- capture your heart. He doesn't need to do that. Often not, he, he captures your heart first. Then that's what allows your mind to be transformed, like we read in Romans 12. Jesus is for real. He is. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Savior able to save for those who believe from their sins. And his coming down to us is what we celebrate in the Advent season. Let me pray for us.